For the call to worship, I'd like to take a look at the, the 23rd Psalm. This is so familiar that we just kind of go, oh, yeah, I know that one, and let it flow by. This is a beautiful hymn, psalm. It's a song. It's, uh, and it's, it's all about trusting God, about having confidence. Um, a term I like is a quiet confidence, that you just know God's in control. Um, psalm 23, six verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... Um, you know, this isn't, not like the Lord isn't my sheep rancher that lives in a hill, up, on a big house up on the hill. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherds have a, an intimate relationship with their sheep. They know them. Um, and you notice it doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd, the Lord is their shepherd. It's the Lord is, it's my shepherd. It's very personal. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It means I have everything I need. Um, it's okay to want stuff, but that's not what this says. The Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. I lack nothing. He leads me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still wa- quiet waters. Um, this just means he provides. He's Sometimes, you know, the King James, I think, says he makes me to lie down in still. Uh, still, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, sometimes he does. Um, sometimes he takes away some abilities, so all you can do is lay down and rest and wait on him. But what that really means is he causes me or he leads me to lay down in just places that are restful. Uh, still waters, quiet waters. Uh, sometimes it's against our wills, but it's, it's something we need. We need quiet rest. Um, Verse 3, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. He, he renews my strength. He gives me what I really need. It's, and it's all for his name's sake. Okay, what does that mean? For his glory. Um, now the scene changes. We're going from um, green pastures and still waters to the shadow of the valley of death. Okay, we're going to live life in both. There's going to be some times of, of difficult pastures, difficult uh, valleys. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. We don't need to be afraid. We can have this quiet confidence, and the way that confidence comes is just a better understanding of who God is, understanding of what he can do, um, and that he sees us. You know, God has a picture of you in his wallet. You're that important to him. Right? I, I like Roger a lot, but I don't have a picture of Roger in my wallet. Um, <clears throat> no, thank you. <laughs> God has a picture of you in his wallet. He knows your middle name. Okay, that's, this is where confidence comes through. It comes from his knowing that God knows you. Um, <clears throat> Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, these are, if you will, almost weapons. A rod, it's like a club for clubbing wolves. You know, it's protection. It's part of God's power. The staff is the shepherd's crook. And it's used both against enemies and against us, the sheep, you know, for just kind of keeping us in line. 
And rather than being fearful of these symbols of God's power, it says, they comfort me, knowing that God has these and he's in control. That comforts me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know, I love the King James, my cup runneth over. You know, what better picture of God's blessings? And our biggest problem is we don't see the blessings sometimes. They just, all these things go by that are wonderful, and we just, we don't ascribe them to God. My cup overflows. I'm blessed way, way beyond what I deserve, and I I suspect you are too. Um, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Loving kindness, just a beautiful word. Yours may say mercy. It may say um, uh, anything else. There's God's abiding love sometimes. Loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. My, I have a, a brother who his kids brought home three stray little kittens one time. And they just, for some reason, they hooked onto him and they followed him everywhere. And uh, so he named them Shirley, Goodness, and Mercy. And so they, they followed him all the days of my life. But I think the, the lesson there is we're going to wander off to the left or to the right, and God's, God's goodness, his loving kindness are going to follow us. We're not going to walk away from God's love. Um, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's good being in the house of the Lord, even here. This is a small picture of what it's going to be like forever. Um, do they have meet and greets in heaven? I hope so. Um, <clears throat> the important thing, Psalm 23 points to Jesus. It's not separate at all. It says, John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is what he did. Uh, that's no greater act of love there. So let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for uh, your loving kindness. I thank you for the steadfast love that's always there. I thank you that you know our middle names, that you know everything about us, and, um, and you still love us. Lord, I pray that as we continue this time of worshiping together with you, that this will be a day of worship. This will be a time of worship. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. Um, If you have your Bible there with you, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18? Uh, If you don't happen to have a Bible, you want to follow along this morning, um, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring one to you so you can follow follow along. Before we start, I need to make it somewhat clear that I actually have a picture of all three elders in my wallet. Like, there's Megan, James, Sam, Benjamin, Roger, Dennis, Mitch, you know, it's... Okay, Genesis 18. I want to begin reading at verse 9, just to set a proper context before, or a flavor of where we're going to be this morning. So, chapter 18, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely... Return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for your written word. I thank you, Lord God, that I pray we are not gathered here this morning to hear thoughts from Dan Mason, to hear the latest things that have happened on the news, to hear our differences and our opinions on this, that, and the other. No, Lord, we are gathered to hear the word of the living God. And that word stands. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be people who gladly, rejoicingly submit to the holy word of the living God. What you say goes. So, Father, I pray that we would do that afresh, even now as we open up your word on our laps this morning. Father, we submit to you. You are Lord. You are King. We are redeemed people, saved people, your servants. Father, I pray that as we hear from the Word of God today, we are ready, willing, desirous to know that which is true. Father, that we may put our lives in accordance with the truth of your Word. We love you. And I ask for your blessing now, God, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not always a positive thing to have a reputation. Let that sit in your mind for just a sec. It's not always a positive thing to have a reputation. Right, Raj? Sometimes it's a negative thing when your reputation precedes you. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and they go, oh, I've heard a lot about you. What do you usually say? I usually run. But no, what you usually say is, oh, I hope mostly good things. It's always interesting, makes you feel uncomfortable when somebody says, I've heard a lot about you. A reputation is an interesting thing, and it's amazing how fast it can spread. To the point in 2021, this morning, standing up here in front of you all, I can say two words and your mind are all going to be swimming in the same water, Sodom and Gomorrah. And immediately the mind goes to two wicked cities destroyed by the living God. In his just wrath, he rained fire on two cities and destroyed them. But it's fascinating that that term is not just something that has a reputation in 2021. Jesus Christ himself used this as a, as a poor example. At one point, speaking to a group of cities, he says, if the signs done here were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. 
Now, why does he talk like that? Why does he bring up Sodom and Gomorrah in particular? Because at the time, it had the reputation of the, the, the sinners of sinners, the, the grave wickedness of Sodom that had received the just wrath of the living God. So when Jesus threw it out there, everybody knew what it was. But even in our own circles as believers, sometimes people go, well, i got to head down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're referring to some other city or some part of a city, and everybody kind of knows exactly what they're saying. They're holding it out there as this example. Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of a wicked cities, two cities, in grave sin, God justly destroyed. Now, most of us hear that and we're in agreement. We go, yeah, I knew that. I knew that before I set foot into this place this morning. I understand that. The question that I think is interesting to propose to somebody once we've all agreed on that is, do you know the passage before that? And then wait to see if they have a response. See how well they know their, their Bible, how much they know Genesis. Because, beloved, the city I just spoke about, that will be destroyed. If you didn't know that, it, it will be destroyed eventually. The passage this morning is the pleading for mercy on that place. From a man who has been walking with God for a long time, and now in his hundredth year, pleads with the Lord, hold on, hold off, don't, don't, please, don't. That's important, beloved. That's vitally important. We, as a, as a Christian people, in a perverse and twisted world, must recognize that what we see, the, the common theme throughout the Bible... Old Testament, New Testament, is the righteous pleading with God for mercy for the wicked. Why? Because the righteous are the wicked redeemed by God. That's, that's what's so funny is we put up these dividing lines and we say, well, we're the righteous, they're the wicked. No, you're the wicked redeemed. You are righteous in Christ. You're not righteous in and of yourself. So when you look down your nose at somebody as the unrighteous and you're the righteous, you've missed the gospel. And I think Abraham understood that because of what he does in the text before us this morning. So let's go back to this, guys. I want to ask the question, what kind of man are we dealing with when we talk about Abraham? And I mean, what have we seen from chapter 12 to chapter 18? What have we seen uh, transpiring in, inside this man? What have we seen that's been changing in him? Well, number one, let me just tell you from the text, God selected this man. This man did not wake up one day and say, I want to follow the God of, of creation. I, no, no, what we're told is God goes to him in the Arab Chaldees in a pagan lifestyle, in a pagan place, and God calls him out of it to himself. God pursues Abraham and calls him out of that to himself. And he says, come, come to me. I'll take you to a land that I'll give you. When we get there, I'll show you where the land is. I will give you the land. I will give you great nations that will come from you and from your wife, who's barren at this time. I know, but we'll, we'll take care of that. Uh, you're going to have many, many nations come from you. Every nation on the earth, every family on there is going to be blessed by you, Abraham, which is magnificent 
except for one thing, when God called him out of there, God never showed him any scrap of evidence that this would be done. All he had, and I use that in parentheses, all he had was the word of God. Trust my word, Abraham. Trust my word. And by faith, Abraham responds. Very important piece here, beloved. Abraham is a man who is justified by faith. I encourage you at some point, sit down with Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, and James chapter 2, and you will see that Abraham was a man who was justified by faith. He obeyed the Lord. He was not just because he did all the good stuff. Remember, we've seen him do bad stuff. Tells his wife, I want you to lie. Tell him you're my sister. All right, I'll, I'll take Hagar and have a child with Hagar so we can get the promise sped up a bit. Lying. Cheating, not obeying the word of God. This man is not justified by perfect righteousness. He is not a perfectly righteous man. This man is justified by faith the same way you are. He looking forward, us looking backward, but still justified by faith, not by works of the law. Nobody's justified by the deeds of the law. Nobody. The law condemns, not justifies. Not because the law is bad, please don't miss this, not because the law is bad, because you are bad, because I'm bad. The law is beautiful. The law reveals the character of God. David said, oh, how I love your law. I meditate upon your law day and night. But then when you hold up your sinful self against that standard, you fail. And so the law becomes ugly because you go, I can't do that. No, you can't do that. That's the point. You say, I can't do that, therefore I must have righteousness from another. His name is Jesus Okay, so back to the text. What do we know about Abraham? Selected by God, declared to be righteous by faith. Numerous instances of communion with God from chapter 12 to chapter 18, and we'll see even some more, where he has this high, high level of intimacy with God to the point James chapter 2 tells us he was considered to be a friend of God. Love that. He was considered to be a friend of God. And it was God's choice to bless this man, to pour out blessings on this man, to reveal himself. Beloved, don't ever ever get comfy, and I mean that in the sense of over-familiarity with the fact that God allows himself to be known by his creation. That That is off the charts. That God has decided to reveal his character to Abraham. And God showed great patience with him. This is a tremendous sign of relationship, but also of love. When somebody takes on a a friend or a companion or, or, or a disciple, and even in their dark days of disobedience, their days of, I fell, I don't I don't have faith, I'm struggling. They patiently endure and walk with them. God has patiently endured and walked with Abraham this whole time. And Abraham's grown. His faith has grown. Beloved, don't, don't, don't uh, I hope you remember, soon God will actually come to this man and say, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and give him to me. Take his life. Could Abraham do that in chapter 12? No, I think the Lord is progressively growing this man in his trust in God and in his faith in the Lord. 
Just for reference, if you're keeping notes, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, and it's an important reminder we cannot forget as Christians, it is impossible to please God apart from faith. We, we do not please the Lord without faith. The reason our good works are acceptable to Him, are pleasing to Him, are because of our faith. Not the other way around. You do not please God because you do the good stuff. You please God because of your faith. The good stuff flows out of the faith. That's why verse 10 of Ephesians 2 comes after 8 and 9. You're saved by grace through faith, but those good works were prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. And in the same way, Abraham was justified by faith, as we're told in Hebrews 11, but his good works followed his faith, as we're told in James chapter 2. Just an important piece of theology. We've got to get very, very clear in our thinking because at times we can get wrapped up naturally into this concept that these are the righteous people, these are the unrighteous people. Why are they righteous? Because they do the good stuff. Why are they unrighteous? They do the bad stuff. That is not the, the dividing line between the human race. If it is, my question would be, who's on the righteous side? None. Well, Christ. Okay, so... Here we go. Now, this is a very fascinating passage because there is some, you ready? Anthropomorphic language. All right. Now, real quick, Wade, will you describe, anth- no, I'm just kidding, brother. <laughs> Anthropomorphic language, very heavy theological term that is pretty simple. When you explain it, you go, oh, okay. It's when you see a characteristic of creation attributed to God for the purpose of communicating something about God. For instance, when we hear about the strong arm of the Lord, well, John 4 tells us that God is spirit, we worship him in spirit and in truth. So he didn't have an arm. So what's the text mean? It means that there's power. It means that God has power. But it uses that image of the strong arm of the Lord. Sometimes we hear about being under the wings of the Lord. We're like, great, now he has wings. No, again, anthropomorphic language being attributed to God for the purpose of communicating about him or an attribute about him. There are times in Scripture where God comes and, I'll put it this way, he stoops down to the level of man for the purpose of helping man understand and for man to be more knowledgeable about the living God. Now, in my opinion, that's not a hard case to make because he is God, and I have a tough time figuring out how to turn on the TV. So is it that crazy to think that God is so loving that he would stoop down to my level or Abraham's level for the purpose of communicating to him that he would use human language to describe himself for the purpose of communicating with man. The book of Revelation consistently has John uh, the Apostle saying, I saw this and it was like. I saw this and it was like. What's he doing there? Well, he's seen things he's never seen before and he's doing his best to describe it. So God here graciously is seeking to come on a level where Abraham can understand and Abraham can grasp what's happening here. Why is that so important? Because there's false teaching out there, rampant false teaching, um, a group of folks who believe that God does not know the future, a group of folks that believe that God is the divine responder who's responding to the actions of men. Men do stuff, and God's constantly trying to play the game as best he can and answer it. Well, so much for messianic prophecies. So much for, there's, there's so much scripture. I think it's a fool's errand to try to prove that from the scripture. 
that God does not know the future. He knows the end from the beginning, absolutely. When he says, Abraham or Adam, where are you? He knows right where Adam's at. He just told Sarah in this chapter, he heard her laugh, and she didn't laugh out loud. So how does he know that? Because he's all-knowing. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he is omnipotent. All-knowing, everywhere, and all-powerful. And yet out of love and condescension to Abram, he speaks to him as if he's a man. Look, if you would, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. Now, what we're being given here by Moses, the author under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, in this passage is God telling us this is the thought process. And the main point that I want to direct your attention to is, do you see the level of friendship between Abraham and the Lord? That is, God says, how could I keep this from him? He's going to inherit the land. His nephew Lot's over there with his family. And there's a high level of intimacy between myself and this man. How could I keep from him what's about to take place? Abram accompanied the guests as they were leaving. The two angels leave, as we'll see later in the the unfolding of this event. God graciously decides to inform Abraham. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. He is stooping to a human level in grace. I want to read this quote to you by Kent Hughes, one one of my favorite Bible commentators, preachers. And Hughes says, God knows everything, but through a huge act of condescension, the Lord responded anthropomorphically to Abraham, like like a mere human being, saying, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. By this, he assured Abraham that he would base his judgment on full, accurate information. So again, the Lord is doing this for Abraham's sake, this communication. And let me throw out there too, guys, God is doing this in the written word through Moses for our sake to know what God is doing here. Should I keep this from him? Remember, Jesus told his disciples, he said, slaves don't know what their master is doing, but friends do. And so here we are in this passage where God decides, yes, I will not withhold this from Abraham. I will fill him in on what I'm going to do. Now, curiosity runs wild in my mind in reference to Abraham's knowledge of what's taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know to what level this man has an understanding of what's taking place there in Sodom and Gomorrah. We know Lot is there with his family. We're told in the New Testament he's referred to as righteous Lot. And so Lot is in the middle of that. 
Abraham, I would imagine, has some understanding of some of the gravity of the sin going on there. But when God unloads on him what he's going to do, I find it super fascinating how he responds. Look down at your Bible. So since God lists these things that he has for Abraham, verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, he already knows. God is sovereign. God knows all things. But for the sake of Abraham, he is communicating this for Abraham's sake. Think about it like this. What he's doing here is really giving Abraham the assurance, the fresh assurance that, Abraham, I am doing this in complete and absolute justice. You go, well, he already knows. I know he already knows, but he wants Abraham to know he knows. So he's telling Abraham, I will go down there. Go down, you're omnipresent. I know, but this is for Abraham. Follow along. God is saying, I will see the gravity of the sin. There's an outcry. The text does not say where the outcry came from. If it is some of the righteous that are in Sodom, if it is from angelic creatures, it does not say necessarily if there's an individual who's cried this out to him, or if the very fact that just the gravity of the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah is an outcry to the living God. Either way, God is conscious of the fact there is a tremendous grave sin going on in the places of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's telling Abraham, I will go down and I plan to destroy it and pour my wrath on it. By this time, Abraham's 100 years old. He has walked with God. He knows the Lord and he knows the justice of God. He knows the character of God. God's let himself be known to Abraham. And what I find so fascinating, and here's kind of a... um, Maybe a fork in the text, a fork in the road that we see here where where Abraham could say, finally, justice. Finally, Lord, you will destroy those nasty sodomites. Finally, Lord, you will go and do away with that wicked, those two wicked cities. I've been waiting for this day, and I'm glad they're going to get there. Beloved, it is a striking contrast to what we see in the rest of the Scripture, where the response of God's people, more often than not, in the Bible is, oh no, Lord, have mercy. Withhold your wrath, please. To the point, in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul says, I would give my salvation for my brethren that they might be redeemed. Acts, or, and, and in um, Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, my prayer before the Lord is that they might be saved. They have a righteousness, but it's not true righteousness. And consistently, Jesus Christ himself cries over Israel. There's a pleading, there's a desire for mercy. And so let me just put this out there really quick, and I'm coming back to it as we wrap up this message. If you find in yourself a gratifying seeing wrath poured out, check your heart, because you're contrary to what you see mostly in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying seeing the justice of God. 
but I'm saying seeing the suffering of fallen sinners under the wrath of God and rejoicing in that. Don't ever forget, beloved, the Scripture says the Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So, back to the text. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there, so the two angels, they turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. The image in my mind is class breaks out and all the students grab their bags and they all leave, and one student goes, hey, prof, can I talk to you for a sec? I got something on my mind and heart that's, I can't, I can't leave it. You said something, and I just, I've got to bring it to your attention. Then Abraham drew near. I love that they give that in the Bible. They give the the detail to the point that he, he came in close. And he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? There's a piece here that I want you to please not, uh, please do not miss, guys, in the, in the passage. And I don't want to make a huge thing out of it, but at the same time, if I neglected it, I think I might do harm to the passage. Please notice, in your Bibles, Abraham does not say, Father, please grant repentance to the wicked. Now, again, I don't want to put a ton of weight on that. I just find it so fascinating because that's a New Testament principle and a principle that we do all the time, and I think is a righteous thing to do to pray for the salvation of the lost, but he doesn't do it in the text. What's his complaint? What's, his, what's he bringing before God? Don't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Have mercy on the righteous. And so this is an intercessory prayer on behalf of others from Abraham before the living God. I don't know about you guys, but there are certain people in this life, in my life personally, that I'm intimidated by and I don't... I'm learning when to keep my mouth shut out of respect for those people. Now, if you know me well, you know I'm not good at that. But when you, it's somebody that outranks you or your boss or something of that nature, you learn to go in a reverence and in a respect for that individual. But this is the living God that he's going to go and petition. This is not, uh, excuse me, boss, can I talk to you for This is the God of the universe. And Abraham is just about to become the very first auctioneer in history. Because he's going to come and actually plead with the Lord and try to work him down. Now, again, anthropomorphic language, put all that in place, so we're, we're careful with the text and we're careful with the attributes of the Lord. But nonetheless, he feels so close to the Father that he could come to him and petition this. I'm convinced what makes the difference here is the level of intimacy he has with God. I don't know about you, those who I know the best on this planet are the ones that I can cut through the fat pretty quick and go directly to a discussion with them. The small talk is not as necessary because of the level of closeness you have with that person. And so Abraham jumps to it with the living God. 
And you want to ask him, Abraham, do you realize the, how, how thin the ice is you are standing on to go before the God and make this petition? But see, I think that's the whole point, is the earnestness of his motivation as he comes to the Lord is pure. It's true. Guys, there's a point there that we would be so foolish to miss, and that is the Lord can handle what you bring to him. If you go to him in prayer and you are at a breaking point and you need him, you need to talk to him, don't be irreverent, that's not what I'm saying, but the Lord knows your motives. The Lord knows your petition. The Lord knows that. And as a friend of God, Abraham comes to God and actually says, if you're just, how could you do this? Remember the last chapter of Job where God really levels Job and reminds Job, Job, let me remind you of just who you've been speaking to real quick. Sit down. You tell me, where were you, when? And then he goes through this barrage of things only the Lord could do. The reason this is not irreverent or in any way ungodly is because the heart of Abraham is love. The motive in his heart is, oh, God, no. No. So listen to what he says. Verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose. (laughs) I love that because he's talking to the omniscient one. Suppose. Seriously. It reminds me of when God goes to Ananias and tells him to go to Saul. And Ananias basically says, God, don't you realize who this is? Yeah, Ananias, I I got got an idea who that is. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now listen, he's arguing God's attributes to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And then I love this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What's the answer? Of course, of course he will. And Abraham knows that. And by the way, God knows that. He's a great defense attorney. As he brings this case to him, he's saying, Lord, please, why would you couldn't do this, could you? Fifty people are going to be fire rained down on them who are following you, and then the rest are destroyed, and you don't care? Now, let me be fair to Abram, but also be critical of him a little bit. The reality is their eternities would look much different. And he doesn't say anything about that. He just says the righteous and the unrighteous, they're both going to fare the exact same way. No, they won't. Not in eternity. That's not true. But you see the heart of the man where he's pleading, Father, you would, would you really do that? Could the God of gods be unjust like that? Now, what I find fascinating is in a fatherly kind of way, the Lord does not crush him and rebuke him instantly. You want justice, Abraham? 
I don't think, Abraham, you want justice, because if I give you justice, you are over. You receiver of mercy. Beloved, side note, may we be very, very careful when we start pleading for justice. Because you're standing on mercy as you plead for justice. But in a fatherly way, God goes with him on this. God walks with him in it. God doesn't just slam him. He goes, okay, okay. And remember, I'm convinced this is for the sake of Abraham, not for God. Then the Lord said, or I'm sorry, I go back to my spot. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. He has a great understanding of who he is before the living God. This is not, this is not some weird pride thing. This is him recognizing his place, but still going before the Lord. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are there. Notice he went five, then he went 10, right? He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, because I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. I'm utterly convinced that this is not man changing God. We're told in Scripture, God does not change. He says, I do not change But in his gracious condescension for Abraham, God is working with him in this. God is walking with him in this. God is teaching Abraham. God's not changing, but man, oh man, Abraham sure has changed from chapter 12 to chapter 18. This hundred-year-old fella is sure looking a lot more godly to now, at this point, he's pleading for mercy for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. His motive is pure. The Lord has heard him out. And the Lord has said, no. 50, I won't. 45, I won't. 30, I won't. 20, I won't. 10, I won't. And as one commentator said, Abraham stopped asking before God stopped giving. And they ended 10. Why did he start at 50? Why did he work down to 10? That's a question mark that I still have. It's in the white space. How, How good of a grasp did Abraham have on how bad it was in Sodom and Gomorrah that he started at 50 and worked down to 10? Why would he work down to 10 if he knew there was 50? Why would he go to 40? Why would he go to 30? I don't know. I have no doubt in my mind that he has Lot and Lot's family in his mind. But to say that he knew that there was only that many righteous, which there wasn't even 10 there, I don't know and the text doesn't say. But the main punch, beloved, that I think we should not move too quickly past is that Abraham had such a level of intimacy with the living God, he could go to him and say, 
please, you are the living God. Do what is just. But I couldn't imagine that you would want to do this. We see his love for people, his closeness with God, his great humility before God is evident. He sees God as the sovereign one to come And he recognizes God's impeccable justice. Please remember, Abraham saved Lot once already by the sword, and now he's seeking to save him by supplication before the living God. Now, if you look at the last verse of the chapter, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's an extremely fascinating passage because you have the will of man, you have the sovereignty of God, you have intercessory prayer, you have the justice of God and yet the mercy of God. There there is so, so much theological bits and pieces in this very moment. And I will say, I think that the full impact of the text can be missed if we chase too many rabbits down too many paths. So if you would, do that on your own time. Funnel down with me to this one thing. There is a blessed duty of intercessory prayer that is on us, a call that is on our lives. Abraham models this beautifully before the living God. And please notice, guys, God never once told Abraham, what are you doing praying to me about this? God never once corrected him, saying, who do you think you are? God, he did not do that in the least. Our father saw godliness in Abraham as he came to him in supplication and in intercessory prayer. Intercessory meaning he's coming between two parties. He's praying on behalf of another. He's lifting up somebody else. God's word calls on his people to be fruitful and to be faithful to pray for others. The more, and please, just a few bullet points for your consideration. The more we practice intercessory prayer on behalf of others, the more we will see our dependency on God, our submission to his perfect will, our growing love for other people. I am convinced, guys, if you are, let me just say this, if you are struggling with any other human right now in this world, and it has eaten you to death, begin to pray for that person. Maybe hard, you may just mm, grit your teeth, but I am convinced the more you pour out in prayer for those, even those who are doing you harm, God can grant a love in your heart for those who persecute you and hurt you. Stephen asked that God would forgive the ones killing him as they were killing him. It grows your love for other people. We'll see that our growing in the trust and trust in God and his word. And finally, I think the more we practice intercessory prayer, the greater our closeness to the Almighty will become in relationship with Him. There's something interesting about us coming before God and pleading with Him on behalf of another that draws us so close to Him. I'm convinced it's because it's part of the heart of God. That that heart of God and that love for people, the more we 
love people and petition on behalf of them, the more we're getting closer to that heart of the living God. That's why, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's something to this, beloved. If your prayer life right now has everything to do with you and nothing to do with others, you are robbing yourself of something the Lord has designed for you. Let me just give you a few passages for your notes because time's sake, I'm not going to read them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, 44, Romans 10, verse 1 through 4, and Acts 7, verse 60. Just some portions of Scripture on being an, a person who prays on behalf of another and pleading with God for mercy. And as I close, I would like you to consider this with me. Imagine if you, Christian, lived in a town, lived in a province, lived in a country, lived in a state where they daily murdered children. Imagine if you live somewhere where prayer, the word of God, and the good news of how somebody is saved is not allowed in the school. Imagine if you live somewhere where pornography was one of the greatest generators of money. Imagine if you live somewhere where sexual sin of all kinds were consistently rejoiced in, propaganda everywhere, and the approval of governing officials. Imagine if you lived in some place where gender was denied, and when God said, I create them male and female, that's thrown out the window and denied, and everything that can be done is being done to remove God's design of male and female. Imagine if you lived somewhere where there was a growing, passionate love for violence. Movies, sporting events, fill in the blank where there's a thirst for violence. Imagine a place where there's an oppression of the weak. Those who can't speak for themselves just get run over all the time. Imagine if you live somewhere where those who love the Word of God and sought to obey Him are those who speak hate speech. We have fooled ourselves if we think we are not due for His wrath. And so I charge you to plead for mercy. To plead with God for the salvation of this fallen country. And to plead for preservation and perseverance of the children of God in this country. For his name's sake. And for the salvation of souls. Let's pray. Father, no one, no one could make an argument that we are not deserving your wrath.
It is a weird place to be, Lord. To have been born again by the miracle of regeneration, fed your word, instructed by good men and women who have poured their lives into my life, and to be living in a country that looks different than what I've ever known, and that which I love with the very depths of my soul, to be hated. So, Father, I'm, I'm pleading with you, please have mercy on our country. Father, I, I ask of you to please bring revival, true revival, not some man-made thing, but a spirit-wrought powerhouse of regenerating work in the lives of individuals in this country. And Father, for those of us that know you, love you, have your word, and it has filled our hearts, God, help us to not bend to the whims of a fallen place, but to cling more tightly to the truth we know, we love, and let chips fall where they fall, Father. If that means our pain and our suffering or even our death, dear God, please grant us stability be faithful, and to know where the battle really lies, Lord God. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood here. The flesh and blood that hate us are in need of the gospel. It's our mission field, Father. No, the battle lines have everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for us to be faithful declarers of this message. For Lord, biblically, the victory's already won. So may we graciously and lovingly and stubbornly declare the victory. To be a whole pile of stubborn biblicists that have a passionate love for lost people. Father, that we might be a powerful instrument in your hand for the gospel and for your glory. And God, we collectively recognize our absolute dependency upon you for that to even take place. For those of us in this little room this morning, Lord, for PCBC, I pray, God, would you strengthen us? Help us to be salt and light in the little corners of our world and to not budge on what we know to be true, but to say it in a way that shows we really love the lost. And we're desirous, Father, to see you reap a harvest. Help us to be workers in that harvest. I love this church, Father, and I, I thank you so much for the last decade here. And I have no clue what lies ahead but I have every reason to rejoice that you're going with us. In Jesus' name, amen.